my whole thing was built on say what you want to say about me and and and, and this is in direct response to being bullied as a kid or being called not black black enough or too black by the white kids or you're this or that or stuttering but say what you want to about me but you can't beat me as a performer fuck you my guest today is wayne brady chances are you have seen wayne brady on television he's an emmy award-winning actor singer performer and host it was his first big break on whose line is it anyways that catapulted him into a beloved tv personality he would go on to be featured on hit TV shows like Dancing with the Stars, Let's Make a Deal, and Masked Singer, which he won. And then there's the brilliant Chappelle show skit that cemented him into pop culture. From the outside, it seemed as though Wayne Brady had the perfect life. But behind the scenes, he was a man struggling to maintain the image that America had of him. From childhood bullying to breaking down on his 42nd birthday, Wayne Brady has been open and honest about his mental health. In this conversation, you'll be hearing about some of the ups and downs of Wayne's career. So stick around right after this quick break. Wayne Brady, thank you so much for joining Imposters. That was my pleasure. So I understand you were raised in a pretty disciplined household. You were raised primarily by your grandmother mm-hmm. and that you had something of a sheltered childhood. Can you talk a little bit about your upbringing and what ways in which the specific upbringing you had influenced the career you had and who you are today? I'll say that I was raised by a very, uh, my grandmother was very um, protective. She she definitely did shelter me, but now that I'm a parent and my daughter just turned 20, I get it. Um, you want the best for your child. We lived in a neighborhood that at the time was, it was okay, it wasn't great. When I was a child, it was all right, but I think as I veered towards my teens, like maybe 11, 12, 13, uh, the drug problem in the neighborhood uh, became prevalent. This this was around the New Jack Swing era, you know, the New Jack City era of the uh, of of the mid mid 80s. So at that point, she made the decision that she wanted to keep me in. She didn't want me running with, uh, you know, the crowd that I was organically attracted to because you want to be cool, cool, you want to fit in. She made sure that I didn't. And I tell you, as a kid, of course, you're only human. You want to fit in. We are herd animals, right? We're pack animals. You want to be part of the pack. But she didn't want that. She feared for my safety. So she made me stay indoors. She didn't let me go outside. I couldn't play with other kids much. I had to come right home from school. And it did two things. It made me very self-reliant. And I was able to self-motivate and self-play. And I think it triggered my imagination. I looked at it as oh, my mom is so mean at that point. But I look back now and go, if it wasn't for my upbringing where I was forced to read, where I was forced to keep my own counsel, where I was forced to to use my imagination to play, to build things, I don't know if I would have had the same, same life, the same uh, outcome. 
Totally. Well, I think even to the isolation point, it's like, I would say for most things in life, there's um, there's a balance. There's a level of moderation that generally can be healthy. Like isolation can be healthy if you have your self-reliance and self-independence. But that, if that's all you know and all you do, obviously, if it tips on the wrong side of the scale, it's not necessarily the most productive thing. Absolutely. What were some of the things as a kid? You, you mentioned that this is where you were forced into kind of discovering your creativity, discovering your sense of self-play because you didn't have other options like this. This was the only thing at your disposal. What did that actually look like as a kid? What are some of the things you did to keep yourself busy? I read almost everything that I could get my hands on. I was a very early reader. I think I was reading reading around three. Wow. And I thank her for that as well. But I love to read. I love to read because for the same reason that I still enjoy reading now, I get to be in control of the world that that I see. No matter what a shitty day it is or whatever, if I sit down with a book, if I'm listening to an audio book, I can get lost in that. Also, I wanted to, at one point, I wanted to be a cartoonist. So I learned to draw. That's where my love of comic books, I'm still a big, big comic book guy and superheroes, fantasy, Dungeons and Dragons, that that whole escapism model, though, those are my tools. I would draw, I would create my own comic books, I would go to school and try to sell them for the for nickel. It, it was my way of, uh, of capturing the world around me and turning it into something that I that I enjoyed. I loved to to play uh, my sister and I, uh, I was raised partially with my sister, Kim, Kimberly. We learned accidentally how, how to create characters, just playing, playing pretend and trying to do diff- different voices. And, and so a, a lot of what I came, came up with, because I don't want, want anyone watching this to walk away with, oh, my God, it's so sad. I actually loved being able to create. Yeah. That, that is, I'm very jealous of that younger Wayne. Like I'm like I think that we as adults need to play more. Yeah. No matter what job you do, children have an innate sense of play and a way of seeing the world. I'm jealous of younger me for being able to tap into that. There are some times when I sit and go, man, I used to have such a good time. And I remember a story that I wrote, because I used to write a lot of stories that I wrote about Christopher Columbus and his ship getting lost and sinking and going to Atlantis and meeting a mermaid. And I remember writing that when I was like nine or 10. And I love that story. So even now I try to tap into that thing, but those are the things that that I did, just a sense of play. It's such a great point. And you know, even as you talk about this idea of in some ways being jealous of your younger self, it's like I, I can vividly remember kind of the last moment as uh, a child or an adolescent where I truly felt carefree. Like I can remember that shift from like the carefree life to the non-carefree life that I live in as an adult today. And so to your point, finding more opportunities to really use the tools that were just intuitive to us as kids, curiosity, wonder, play. It's amazing how we spend the rest of our life going back to where we started. We spend so much time in, in my opinion, some of us more than others using cynicism and the excuse of, well, I'm grown. That's why. 
And there is a time and a place. Yes, you know that I forget now the quote of, you know, when when I became a man, I would I put away childish things. But I believe that's that's unhealthy. I think there's a way to navigate life. Being an adult, being a fully focused adult, paying your bills and showing up on time. But why don't we use wonder? Why don't we use curiosity? Why don't we exercise joy? Especially when life can throw these curveballs at you. I think a lot of us settle into the thing of, well, that's just what being an adult is. Life is supposed to be like this. Life is supposed to, especially when I hear some someone say, no, man, life is supposed to suck. And then you just do it and then you get through it. It's like, woo, no, no, I don't want to get through it. Look, I want to enjoy this ride as long as I can. And I've been having talks with my daughter now. She at 20 and certain people in her life passing away and she's seeing these things like my grandmother and, and other people in her life. She's understanding mortality and it's really hitting her. And the lesson that I want her to take is, oh, don't get down about it. Just go, oh, I see. That's a very present thing. It could happen at any time, anywhere. But at your age, start practicing gratitude and joy. Just do your thing. Do your thing. Just know that there will be setbacks, but they don't have to knock us down. We, we can still call upon that child, childhood joy. And it's not easy. It's not easy at all. I, I totally agree. And I, I I fully subscribe to this idea that like gratitude really acts as the bedrock for everything what we want our life to be. Like if you if you approach it with kind of a presence to what's going on and a gratitude to all that we have, given like you said, what we have could go away at any moment in time. And we have no idea when that moment is. So I want to push the story forward. You got your first professional entertainment gig, I believe, working at Disney. Tell me how that came to be and what did your family at the time think of this career path that you decided to pursue? Well, I got cast at Disney uh, as a character for the Christmas parade because I had a plan. I looked at that as my way in. Growing up so so close to Disney, my grandpa always made sure that back in the day, back, back, back in the day, Disney had ticket books like it was an e-ticket and a B ticket to ride these rides and we had stacks of them because my grandpa was one of those guys that he loved life he was always so full of joy and the one thing he loved was Disney he always took took us to Disney so when I knew no one else knew because I never talked about it but when I knew that I wanted to perform my first thing in front of my face was oh I want to be one of those singer dancers at Disney I want to do that thing but I knew that before I got to that point, I'd have to get into the park. So I got up the courage. I saw the ad for um, for the Christmas parade. I said, I'm going to do it. It was the first time that I'd auditioned like that. And it was a really simple audition. You just do a jazz square. And they would say, try to embody your favorite character. And I said, ooh, I want to be, be Tigger. So I was full of bounce. And I started dancing around. And and, you're, and as you're coming in this line, there's, there's somebody waiting who they would go, this way or that way, and you either got the job or you didn't. Very little skill needed <laughs> to become a character. It's can you walk and can you do a jazz square? But I had a plan. So my grandmother really didn't think anything badly of it at that point because it was a job. And, and I think I was 15 when I auditioned, and I was just 15 turning 16. So I was eligible, and 
and grow, growing up in my house, a job, as soon as you're old, old enough to work, you hit the bricks, go do it. Because that's just how our culture and our family, my folks are from the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands. So there, there are no lazy folks in that household. And I was also happy to be able to pull, pull my own weight. So at that point, she, she was very happy that I had a job. It was later, once I started working at Disney, and then I started auditioning more for TV things, and all while I was in high school still, the big fight came when I graduated high school. It's like now I've had a couple years of, oh, that's cute, but now you're going to go to school and really do the thing yep. and become something that we, that we can be proud of. No, I'm going to be an actor. I'm really good at this. I'm going to work and audition. And that's when my family did not understand. And also now being a parent, in hindsight, I get it. You want the best for your kids. My grandmother was only operating from a place that she knew. She never finished high school. She never finished junior high school. She was from the, the era where, if you're, especially where she's from, if you're black and you're poor, you and you have multiple kids in a household, you have to make a choice. Not everybody's going to go to school. The oldest, oftentimes, will sacrifice, stay home, they'll work. She cleaned homes. She was on her knees and her hands every day from, from sunup to sundown to help her mother, who was also sick, to make sure that her brothers and sisters went to school. So by the time she became a grandmother and she lived all this life, in her mind, you have to go to school. That's how you become successful. My father went to school, became successful. My aunt went to school, became successful. So I'm not going to go to school. So if I don't go to a great college, I'm not going to be successful. And she would have failed. Interesting compute with her, given the context she had. Very, very limited context. And I think that's the forgiveness that you have to pay to your parents for any, especially children of immigrants, I feel, when you feel that you're being constricted and, and having a way of life forced upon you, it's out of love and that's all they know. You can break the paradigm, but you have to understand you're bumping up against what they know and it's all out of love. How long did it take? My deal with her was that when I graduated high school, I got a bunch of scholarships. I turned them down because I didn't want to go to school. I hated school. I didn't like the confinement. I loved learning. I, I love to learn even to this day. That's why I love to read. But I want to learn what I want to learn. I don't believe, and it's a completely different con conversation, but the school system in, in the U.S. is not set up in such a way to bring out in every not everyone is going to go to school for the same thing and love the same thing so you all shouldn't be in the same classes me the person who excels at english and and my vocabulary was off the charts and da 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 but i hate math i'm not great at it i don't enjoy it it sets me back it pulled down my entire gpa i felt trapped i and you're I, just like why am i taking all these math classes <laughs> why am i taking three math classes why am i in it because i don't want these they don't help me so i would have rather have done something else so i didn't want that in college i was like hell no i want to audition and i want to see what life has for me she said i'm i said i'll make a deal with you i'll, I'll go to valencia community college it won't cost anything. I even got a scholarship there. If I can get a job in a year that shows you that I can truly make my living doing this, you let me go. If I don't, 
then I promise I'll transfer to a four-year university and get it and get a degree in anything you want. I happened to get a job within the first semester, and I was very, very fortunate because I fell asleep every, every single day that I was in class at Valencia because I was riding the bus and working at Disney as a singer and doing a bunch of theater gigs. So I'm so glad it worked out because otherwise, I, I, I don't know what I'd be doing. Yeah, it's funny. You talk about how a lot of people you know, say they love school and all these things, but I would also say on the other side, I would say there's a group of people that I would consider to be just like entrepreneurial in nature. And oftentimes when I think about like what you've accomplished in your career and call it like career long entertainers, I think there is a a certain entrepreneurial nature you have to have in kind of thinking about yourself as a business and all the opportunities that surround you as a business. And I would say actually the majority of entrepreneurial individuals I talk to hated school, not because they don't like learning, but they like learning on their terms. They want to learn in a way that actually makes sense in the context of what they want to do with their lives. Absolutely. And I love that you 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 called an actor an entrepreneur, because when I teach an acting sem- seminar, sometimes the first thing I tell, tell them it is called show show business. Don't do this. Don't even dip your toe in it if you don't understand the fact that you are a business. Sometimes your stock is high, sometimes your stock is low. There are things that you can do to build your business's stock. You want your 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 business to go as long as you can. What, what are the best ways? You, you have to invest in yourself. And I didn't know what to call it when I was a kid, but all, all I knew was this was the job. There was no other job. And and you have to really be, be willing to take a risk on yourself. And and I also tell tell them in these classes, you know, the funny thing is, I was so cocky slash confident starting off because when you're starting something, a new endeavor, and you don't know anything, I literally knew nothing about show business. All I knew was I want to get on stage. TV wasn't even an option for me. I was like, I don't know how people do that thing, but I know I can get on a stage. So that's all I want to do, not knowing all of the stuff. And that helped me because I just bumped my way into op- opportunities. I looked into auditions. I went, oh, I'm doing the show? Okay, great. And I was fearless. It's not until later when you have things to lose that fear and imposter syn- syndrome creeps in because you go, oh, now now that I know the odds, holy crap, this shit is crazy. What yeah. made me think that I could do this every day? I'm stupid. Well, I think you bring up such a good point, which is, and and this was the case for my co-founder and I when we started our business, is being naive is like one of the greatest gifts you can have. Because if you're not naive, you're going to stop yourself from ever starting the thing because you realize how batshit crazy you are in the beginning yep. for thinking that you can do it. So I think it's such an important point you make. Let's push forward to whose line is it anyway? How did the opportunity come about? And you know, my understanding is this was such a big springboard in your career, but paint a picture of how all this came about. Whose line, uh, I'm not even going to say it was such a springboard. It was the springboard. It was the springboard. Up until when I finally got whose line, I'd already been a professional actor for 10 years, like right out of high school. So I graduated um, high school in 99, uh, I mean, 89. I got Who's Line in 98 and the ABC version in 99. So an overnight success, right? So in those 10 10 years, I was busting my butt 
I, I did a lot of TV guest spots. You would never know my name because I was just a guest actor do, doing the stuff. I did a lot of theater, a lot of music. I was touring as a background singer or, or in a music review or do, just like working. Like I was a journeyman. I was just working. So I'd already auditioned for Whose Line twice by the time that I auditioned for it the last time. And I'll tell you this, and to anyone watching, whether you're an actor or not, just because you sucked once doesn't mean you're always going to be bad at it. Just because you sucked twice doesn't mean you're always going to be bad at it. Yeah, be self-aware. I'm not going to beat Usain Bolt, even if I train. I'm like, but I'm... But man, I can get faster. No, Wayne, it's probably not going to happen. Do something <laughs> else. But if you're aware, you're like, oh, there's something. I've got something. Yeah. It's just not right right now. We auditioned when I lived in Orlando when I was maybe 19 or 20. Sucked. My whole group sucked. And, and if they see this, they they know the truth. We sucked. <laughs> we moved to L.A. We auditioned at some other point. We sucked. But we were a little better. But we sucked. I could never have pictured myself on Whose Line Is It Anyway. The only reason I auditioned was because my group auditioned. And I was in a group called SAC Theater in Orlando. And then later, seven of us moved out to L.A. and we became the House Full of Honkies. And out of the seven of us, I'd say four of us have had really, really good Hollywood careers. Um, and my partner, Jonathan Mangum, who some of you may have seen on Let's Make a Deal or Whose Line Is It Anyway or my sketch show, he, he and I come from the same group in Florida. So... I never saw myself on that show. I loved the show from when I was in high school. Colin Mockery was one of my heroes, but who's gonna put me on TV doing improv and on American TV? Psh, get out of here. So fast forward to 98, I'm working at Universal Studios in Hollywood in the theme park. I'm playing Dracula and Wolfman in the Beetlejuice rock and roll show. It's a Broadway style <laughs> show with lights and the whole thing where, where Beetlejuice brings to life all the universal monsters and we sing covers of popular songs like Dracula saying, I'm blooded. So, <laughs> so paint, paint a picture of that kind of thing. So on that day, I was the Wolfman. Wolfman, because I was also a hip hop dancer. So I was dressed up as the Wolfman in this face, face paint and ripped jeans and I'd get down and break dance and I'd sing and rap. So I get a call from, from my agent. Whose line is it anyways auditioning here in the States? It's like, well, hell no. But the rest of my guys said, come on, we're all going together. So the Groundlings, Second City, anybody and their grandmama who wanted to do improv was at that audition. I knew I wasn't going to get it. So I had five shows in the theme park schedule that day. I gave away two of them and said, I'm going to miss these two shows. I'm going to drive down to, to Fairfax at the theater where, where, where the audition is. I'll suck and not get it in time to get back up to Universal Studios to do my last show. I'm going. World's worst. Any of those games where you were the world's worst person to be on a bus with, go. Scared the shit out of me. It's like, how do you do that? I can't do that. I never really tried, but I just knew that I wasn't funny enough to do that. We all start auditioning. This group goes. This group goes, these people leave, this people leave. Wayne, you're next. Oh, shit. We go in. We start doing World's Worst. And an amazing thing happened. I actually was okay. Not great, 
I got a chuckle and I step back in the line. When you do the next one and I'm watching how it works, I go, okay, I just need to play. I just need to stop and just, like, because I knew I wasn't going to get it, I stopped feeling pressure. I was like, well, if that's the case, all right, world's worst person to uh, to go fish fishing with. Great. I'll just be be a shark on the boat with the, the guy. And it's working. Because I'm laughing because I'm like, any second I'm going to get cut. So this is great. Then they start asking me to do the musical improv piece, which I knew, at least I knew that that was my thing. We started say, sing, singing some songs, knocking it out. They asked if I can do impressions. So yeah. So then they start throwing, now, the impressions that were cool at that point. But they just start asking me to do James Brown, Sammy Davis Jr., Mike, Michael Jackson, any the, the, the Rolling Stones, Oz, Ozzy Osbourne, anybody of that ilk. And I'm doing it. And I'm improvising. And at that point, that was one of the first times in that audition that I went, oh, I'm really good at this. Because I told myself a narrative a few years earlier in the group that I was in that my role was to be the backup guy because comedy wasn't my thing. I was trying to get on Broadway and I was auditioning for other things, so that wasn't my thing. So I was just here here to support my funny friends. So I never really pushed myself. It wasn't until that audition changed my life in more ways than one because that is the moment that I felt I felt this switch and went, oh, this is my shit. I mean, you realize your story was wrong. You realize your story that you've been telling yourself for so long was actually not right. Yeah. And how often do we get that chance to say, maybe I'm wrong about me in a good way? And long story made short, by the time it was finished, there were two or three of us left. I forget if it was three, but it was definitely two was myself and one of my team teammates. We were invited to the rehearsals, to the workshops for Who's Line. And that was a dream. And that changed my life. Then, because of that confidence that that audition gave me, I then booked this series on VH1 at the exact same time. And so in the timeline, I auditioned for Who's Line, and I didn't hear back for a few months. I auditioned for this other VH1 show called, uh, oh, Vinyl Justice. And I got it. And it was basically this improv show with two guys going out in the street judging people's music tastes and hobnobbing with music stars right up my alley my confidence in that improv audition gave me the confidence to improvise at this other thing and so all of a sudden the thing that i didn't know i could do was like oh this is in my back pocket the whole time then i get cast as one of the first simbas in lion in lion king so when whose line came back i had a decision to make stay and do Who's Line or go to Broadway with this brand new Disney show and play Simba. And I chose to stay and do Who's Line. And that changed my life. You know, it's remarkable, not only just, you know, the the progression of that story, but just incredible lessons that are also just so applicable outside of the entertainment world. Like, I mean, you said it, but you had such a strong narrative of, your, of yourself being the backup guy in this group. For whatever reason, that became your story. And you're wrong about your story in a good way, but it just shows like how powerful these stories are. And you had, I would say, the the combination of the skill and kind of the guts to go and do this audition with maybe some luck of getting the opportunity to even try out for the thing to learn that your story was wrong. But you just think about how many people in their lives, they go their entire freaking life 
with the wrong story about themselves and they don't even realize that they could have been a totally different person. We all do that. That's the yeah. thing is we all, we're such great storytellers and as corny as it sounds, and now as I get older, I re- realize that corny is just another word sometimes for true. For, for true? <laughs> yeah. Come on, man, speak it. That story that we tell ourselves has such power that it even affects, which is why even as an actor, you know, there's an exercise called an outside in. Okay. Think, think of it as in, in common parlance, fake it till you make it, right? If you carry yourself... It's that thing of carrying yourself like you belong. Yep. So I've never been a doctor. I've never been an, been a soldier. I've never done a lot of things, but I've had to play them on TV. And so I go, you know what? This is what I know of this. I'm going to play and just have fun. And that's a story. I am this thing right now. I am this thing right now. That helps me at work. But an even better example of that, and my daughter and I talk about this because we're very open with each other about mental health, and I yeah. share share things with her. I am an insanely private person because of my upbringing. I am a prototypical introvert. And part of my story as well is a certain part of my life, I had a very bad stutter brought on by anxiety and 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 stress and bullying and feeling less than. And so my, my way of dealing was I couldn't speak and get it out. I, I dealt with a speech therapist when I was in elementary school, but I say that to say that I have to use Wayne's representative to even do this podcast, to even go on stage. That Wayne has to gear up. I go, Hey Wayne, you ready? Oh, sure. Let's, let's go. That confident, self-possessed person has to gear up and go. Yeah, it's that part of you. Right. So I've had to tell myself the narrative of, get rid of the narrative of, I can't do that. I, I don't want to talk in front of a bunch of people. That's stupid for me to think that I can go. I can't. But, but, oh, no. And that story even affects your physicality. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so appreciative of you for, you know, sharing what the experience of whether it's doing a podcast like this or going on TV still is like, because, you know, I'm sure most people who are listening to this that know you, they look at you as this confident, suave guy who can command a room like they would never in a thousand years, unless you use the words to say it, think that from time to time, actually being public facing and being around a group of people can actually be a an unnatural experience for you that you need to work yourself up the courage every single time to do that thing. So I'm appreciative of you uh, for sharing that. It's my pleasure. I, I think that the more people see people that they think that about sharing human things, yeah, it, it just brings us all closer. It's not that I can't do my job and kill it. It's like, no, I really feel this right now. And so I hope hope that helps someone. And that's the goal of the show. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we get into Wayne's internal drive as a performer, but some of the pitfalls of having that chip on your shoulder 24-7. Stay with us. And we're back. Before the break, we covered Wayne's upbringing and how he broke into show business. Now, we get into his bouts with mental health. 
We talk about the breakdown he had on his 42nd birthday, which eventually led him to finally seeking help, guided by his ex-wife. So you alluded to it with talking about as, as a child, you had a stutter that was brought on by a number of things, including anxiety. And I would say over the, you know, over the course of your career, you've dealt with different challenges, like just like everyone deals with challenges. And what I'm interested in is how the tools by which you navigate these challenges has changed over time. So you talked about as a child, you know, you had certain ways for for dealing with this anxiety um, and for dealing with your stutter. Then as your career progressed, you know, I'll just use one example. There's this really powerful example of when Paul Mooney took a swing at you on Chappelle's show. You know, I think the quote was, white people love Wayne Brady because he makes Brian Gumble look like Malcolm X. And, and, and that was an experience that probably an uncomfortable one that you had to navigate. You can even talk about kind of what the outcome of that situation was, but what I'm even more interested in is how have your tools for navigating, whether it's public criticism or feeling less than at points, changed over time as you've accumulated more tools in your toolkit? I think the way that it has, it's so funny you bring that up. Just in my Instagram timeline this morning, a comedy clip of Paul Mooney came up doing his stand-up. And I've got to say, Wayne right now can appreciate the genius that Paul Mooney was. God, God bless his soul. Paul Mooney was one of the smartest, radical, intellectually based comedians of his time, especially being a black man speaking the truths that he was speaking. So just like how we were talking about how as a parent you can see what your parents did, the Wayne sitting here right now at 50 versus the Wayne that I forget how long ago the Chappelle sketch was, at least 10 years. Yeah. That guy who took that to heart so much was still the kid. And this is where we get into corny territory again for some. You know, that whole thing, thing that sometimes your therapist says, you have to parent your inner child. If you're listening to this and you don't believe it, I, I, you're, you're wrong because it's real. You're so many moves that we make right now are based in some shit that happened to you when you were eight and you keep responding to the hate over and over again or you're responding to the positive feeling or or you're responding to whatever you felt my the way that wayne at that age handled any criticism on his blackness or the way that he spoke or the way that he carried himself it was almost devastating to that construct that was me. And we all have, have our constructs. My whole thing was built on, say what you want to say about me. And, 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 and this is in direct response to being bullied as a kid or being called not black, black enough or too black by the white kids or you're this or da 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 or stuttering. But say what you want to about me, but you can't beat me as a performer. Fuck you. You can't beat me as a performer. I didn't know that I was carrying all that anger either. So my whole career, my whole life was built with that. And then once I got on TV, con concerned with building, with, with building this outside shell that was super clean, super crisp. You could bounce a quarter off me. Wayne has his stuff together. America loves Wayne. He's going to be there. That 
thing, that thing that I built. So when Paul said what he said, he hit a wound. He hit an old wound. Now, I will go to my grave saying that I still feel that the crux of the joke, and it's just the way that I see race and, and, and the country, the crux of the joke is wrong. And for those of you listening that don't know what the joke, basically when Paul said Wayne Brady makes Brian Gumble look like Malcolm X, at the heart of that joke is Brian Gumble. if some of you are too young, he, he was a sports figure. I, I forget if Brian is even on TV anymore. Um, I, I thought he was. He has to be, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. On HBO, prob, the probably. Brian, yeah, yeah. Brian, Brian Gumble was always one of those cats when I was a kid. He talked like someone in the news. Everything was like... So that voice is linked with someone who is not black. How do you talk black? Still don't know because, <laughs> but that's a different conversation. So the joke was saying Bryant Gumbel is so close to white. He's not black enough that this guy, Wayne Brady, makes that guy who is not black look like one of the historically black black people black pride black power muslim nation na- nation of islam mal malcolm x so look how white that guy is me i feel that at its heart that is a divisive joke and it because black people are not a model a monolith so but that's a whole different thing so that wayne was deeply hurt by that i had to develop tools not just for that joke but in life i'm in a business where thick skin is necessary because rejection. So I couldn't handle being told no, but I couldn't handle someone who, by the way, has no effect over what goes into my pocket. He could ruin my day. Luckily, a great sketch came out of it that I was able to work with Dave Chappelle, and we did this whole thing, and it was amazing and kind of shifted my whole thing with some people. But just compound that with social media. In this day and age, you have to develop tools because you could go online at any time, and somebody is either saying that they hate you making fun of what you wore, making fun of you just sitting there. Oh, I just saw Wayne Brady in the airport, and ooh, he looks, insert. You have to develop these tools to, that has nothing to do with me. So I had to develop those tools. So from that point to this point, I've learned, am I perfect? Not at all, because I can still have a bad day about it. But I've learned to divorce myself of what other people think in that realm. Unless it's something that I've done, then I don't let it bother me. Because, dude, I could walk on stage and do a show for 2,000 people, and I could see the one person in the fourth row who at the second I look at them, that person could mess up my whole night. Yeah. I have to let that go. Life is too short. There are way more important things in life than worrying about if this person or that person likes you. Yeah. There's something interesting you said before, which is you're talking about, you know, people, whether it would it would be they made fun of your stutter or they would say something to you and you'd be like, you could say all you want about me, but fuck you, I'm gonna be a better entertainer than you. That to me, what when I hear that, it feels like at least some piece of the motivation that motivated you in your career was you operated with this chip on your shoulder. You operated with the people who are doubting me. Like, I'm just going to prove it. I'm just going to outperform. I'm going to be better. And that is an incredibly powerful motivator, but it is still inherently connected to another person. 
right? It's it's connected to someone else and not from your own deep motivation and love. Has that changed over time or do you still find that is a a core piece of what motivates you in the work you do? I'd like to think that it's gone away some because that chip on my shoulder, the things that you think of as your superpower and that serve you, and this is something that I've talked about in therapy and that I've learned, and even in various men's groups that I've that I've been a part of, the thing that you think of as your superpower, it does serve you because you get older and life changes. So the anger, the drive, the chip on my shoulder, that, oh, that served me. It got me in the door. It made me dance my ass harder or it made me learn faster. It made me stand stand out. But at a certain point in your life, you have to operate from a different place. I don't feel that anymore. There are days when I know that I, I get mad about some something, but I don't have the chip on my shoulder that size. I still have one when I feel I have to prove myself when someone, and then it resurfaces when someone's like, 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 let's say when I'm on Dancing with the Stars or Mass Singer, which I only did because of the chip on my shoulder. Because I'm like, what do you mean you don't know that I sing? I've got a fucking Grammy nomination and I've been on Broadway. What do you mean? But once, once again, that's not taking into consideration. I've had to teach myself so many lessons. What people don't know, they don't know. Boom. You, you can teach them. So what they don't know, they don't know. So I use the chip. And then I take it off versus rocking it 24 hours a day. Well, I think that's such a an important point you make, which is, first of all, that these different motivators, you know, in life and in, in this example, the chip on your shoulder, like it can actually, it can be so effective. It can be so powerful for you, but also our life is dynamic. Who we are is dynamic. And the things that serve us one day aren't necessarily the best things to serve us in the future. And to your point, like it's a spectrum, right? It's it's not this light switch. You can either fully operate with a chip on your shoulder or you don't have a chip at all. It's like at different points in your life, like what's the healthy dose that it can be a strong motivator, but it doesn't detract. And you know, you don't have to face the massive trade-offs of what that chip on that shoulder represents. Part of, I think, of being being an adult and being a professional is knowing how to balance the two. Maybe now isn't the time for me to speak my complete truth to you because it's not going to serve anything. I can still know what I feel, but I don't have to, to do it in a certain way. So now there are a room full of people that the narrative is, I really liked Wayne Brady, but he was a dick. He came in and he said such and such and blah, da, 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 da. And in a small town like this, that's how things happen. Now, luckily, I'm not a dick, I think. And more, more people know that I like to be a team player. I'm very serious about my stuff, but they know that I never mean to hurt anyone. But I can also learn. So that chip has cost me a few times, and even in relationships, they always trying to prove yourself. Being angry at someone not understanding you, those are all things that I know come from childhood trauma of you will understand me, you will listen to me, I will do this right now. Um. So something that you've talked about in the past is your 42nd birthday. And right around then was, that was your rock bottom. You you had um, what you describe as a mental breakdown. And it sounds like that was the low point for Wayne Brady. Talk about 
how you got there. And I would say more importantly, how did you climb out of what felt like a shitstorm at the time? In a nutshell, you know how I got there is by being that shiny, varnished version of myself that we talked about earlier. You can only go so long trying to be that person. Even in my marriage, my ex-wife is my best friend. I've talked about her ad nauseum in various stories. And we have a production company together. It's called A.A. Wayne and Mandy Creative and we produce shows together now, and and uh, and and we produce the daughter. When we got married, I remember that the pressure to be perfect was an all time high, because I felt like I was this representative on TV, at least, especially on ABC at that time. One one of the only young black men. I wanted to be as strong and representative as I could. I wanted to look like we had a good life, a perfect life, like we didn't fight. I I wanted to represent a healthy relationship. But each of the things that I just talked about, when you start doing that, you're actually doing the opposite of everything that you're setting out to do. And all that started to take its toll year after year, year after year, until at some point the veneer has to crack. And in my case, it just didn't crack. It came completely down. And it was because I could only run from my emotions and the way that I was feeling for so long. And I had a good run. I managed to dodge them for 42 years, but it it, it was a combination on that day of my daughter's field trip and feeling alone and Robin Williams passing. I just felt like, what the hell am I doing here? I am the worst. I felt like a bad dad because I was always on the road or always doing something. I felt like a horrible ex-husband. I was lonely. I felt like a horrible partner. I felt less than in every regard. And then I've got to turn around and smile. Some Somebody wants me to get on stage and smile. I was done. And God bless Mandy for she was the one, Wayne, you need help. Wayne, let, let's get you help. You have to talk to someone. You have to, you have to. And if it wasn't for her, I don't know if I would have listened to anyone else. And the process of dragging myself out of that particular pit was I had to put in some work. But here is the, here is the addendum to that story. Almost 10, 10 years later, right? I'm still having to put in work. And I've had major setbacks. Last year, it's been a year exactly that I lost my grandmother, the lady that raised me. That sent me into an amazing spiral that I had to try to dig myself up from because I didn't know how to handle grief. So I had to dig myself up from under that. How? I listened to my family. I tried to go back to my therapist and I went on Dancing with the Stars. I did a silly dancing show because I knew that would have brought my grandmother joy. And I said, at least I have to tap into some something to, to make myself show up every day. And I had to show up for rehearsal every day. I had to show up to go to work at Let's Make a Deal every day. I, I had to show up to shoot my, sit, my uh, show, American Gigolo, every day. I, I had to show up for my daughter every day. That's my way of getting around that. So that's the lesson that I learned. 
And it's never going to end until the day that I leave the earth. I have to show up. I have to find something to show up for every day. Because when, when you don't find something to show up for, then you feel like you don't have to show up. And that's when it gets dark. Again, thank you for sharing and, and being vulnerable. Um, and I, you know, I know this is something that you're really used to doing now. And I, I feel like it's cliche at this point to say like, you know, vulnerability, vulnerability is sexy, but like, it's one of those things that I, I kind of don't give a shit about saying it because I don't view that there's too much of it <laughs> at any point. We're, we're, we're still so far from that part of the spectrum. When you said you started doing the work after your 42nd birthday and, you know, a, a combination, this, this, uh, beautiful potpourri of shit that I would say sent you kind of in this tailspin. Your daughter was on her field trip, Robin Williams passing, um, just a number of things. You said that, you know, Mandy basically convinced you, she, she twisted your arm to ultimately start doing the work and get help. Because she loved me. Yeah. And, yeah. and by the way, what I'll say, I know nothing about your guys' relationship or marriage, but to me, there's something beautiful in the fact that despite being exes, you guys have such an amazing relationship. Like to me, that has to mean growth in life. It just has to mean, mean that. And so I think that's beautiful in itself. Did you do any of this work before your 42nd birthday or is this all post 42nd birthday? And also you talked about the veneer cracking. Did you have any sense of self-awareness of what you were building up and how dangerous it was? Or did you only have the awareness after it actually cracked? I knew something wasn't right. But here's the thing with, with denial, right? I would feel something wasn't right, and I could fill it. I, I could fill it with something. I could fill it with, I could fill it with buying stuff. I could fill it with the pursuit of a relationship. I could fill it with video games. It's the, the junk food of your spirit. Anything that was, I could fill it with, with the pursuit of anything to make me feel good. And I say anything. And that's when you start to get into, you know, the bordering of love addiction. And once I even realized that that was a thing of it's possible to try to be addicted to love or it's a fantasy, of course it is. Because once again, it goes back to what did that child need? That child needed Love needed acceptance, fan fantasized about a world where he was accepted, needing these things, things he didn't. So that's what you end up doing. Everything plays itself out. So I was not aware. There was no awareness. It was just like, oh, I feel uncomfortable. Let's do something else. Oh, I feel so bad. So that that thing happened. But when Mandy, which by the way, the reason that we remained in each other's lives and still do is because we we were friends like true blue friends we came up together and i feel that people don't in relationships they stay together because of children and they stay together because of money or or convenience you should stay stay together because you are friends and you're real ride or dies she was my ride ride or die to this day we started dating when she was 19 and I'm, and I was 23. Wow. I'm 50 and she's 46. Yeah. So we've, we've been together as friends longer than most couples have been together as couples. And it's because of her, um, that I decided to do the work because I looked up and I learned in a meeting that I went to, to a meeting, the thing that you 
put before your health is the thing that you lose. And I never wanted to lose my family. And I certainly don't want to lose my life. So I had to try to do the work. And I still do the work imperfectly, so imperfectly. Like right now, I, I need to start all over again. But at least I'm aware. And at least I carry myself a certain way. And at least I know. So I take take those things as victories. Yeah. I have one last question for you, which is, what does the work actually look like today? What does it look like for you to continue to gain self-awareness of what's going on up there and to continue to grow as an individual? And part 1B feels like, again, because you have had success in your career and you're such a career and growth-oriented person, a very easy thing for you to snap into is using work and busyness as a way to avoid the work. Like even, you know, one of the things you talked about is in the loss of your grandmother, you know, one of the things you did was Dancing with the Stars as a way to honor her, but also other things that you've done to kind of grow or do the work. Actually, some of the things you named were work-related, not even like mental health work-related. And so how do you, what are the tools slash how do you find that balance? I'm still working on that because you so observant. Yeah, most of my life has been, which is why I find myself now, even my hobbies, work is my hobby. I like to write songs. And if I record one, we do great. Or I think the biggest hobbies that I have, which may not be very, very sexy to some somebody else that, that I'm with, is video games and my books. And it's not necessarily a group pro the project. It, it all comes back to these are things that I like to do by myself. Leave me alone. Yep. Um, I think what doing the work looks like today, even today on this Monday, the work begins with making your bed. I learned that from my dad, who was a lifetime mil military man. But I learned that in therapy as well. I, I learned that. In, in my first men's group as we were talking about something and they said, you got to make your bed. And I said, well, I always make my bed because that's just how I grew up. My father made me because no, but pay attention when you make your bed. Like, all right, I'm a grown ass man. I'm going <laughs> to make, make my bed. I do military corners. I pull everything tight, but I understood it now. And I even say that in my acting classes, I say, say, look, get up first thing you make your bed. If you make your bed, you've you've done something. If you do nothing else during that day, yay, I made my bed. That's a win. Sometimes we go without wins, and that win felt good. I'll, I'll make my bed. Now I'll, I'll keep that commitment I made. Now I'll go over to work, and I'll keep the other commitment. Ooh, that felt good, too. Now I can string together three, four things, and the next thing you know, cock-a-doodle damn, your day's over, and I did it. And that's what piece of the work looks like for, for me personally. I have to keep my commitment to myself to see my therapist. I will dodge seeing my therapist in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. Oh, no, I'm working because I have rehearsal or a meeting at 9 a.m. and I can't make it. I'm sorry. Or there'll be just days when I go, nope, I don't want to talk to you. And I paid for the time. It's my time. No, I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk. I have to remind myself. So this week on Wednesday morning, I'm keeping my commitment to talk to him. I want to con continue to go to meetings. I haven't been in meetings because I was working. Damn well knowing that on some of the things I work on, I help make the schedule, I can make a meeting. 
Yeah. So that's what work looks like is accountability. And I'm still at a place where sometimes it's great, sometimes it isn't, but at least I'm aware and I'm trying to make those commitments to myself. I love it. What an amazing conversation. You know, there, there's so much that I think our listener will take from this, both of the amazing success you've had, but also just like the human experience that to me still doesn't get shared often enough. And just the wild growth that you've had, not just over the course of your life, but even in the last 10 years of your life, which is such a remarkable thing also, because I think also people assume, you know, once you get to a certain age, you know, they, they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Like you just, you, you have the stories you have and you're stuck with the tools that you have. And I sure hope that's not the case when I get to your age. And it's just, it's amazing to see, you know, how much you've progressed just as, as a person in this last decade. So, uh, Wayne Brady, really appreciate you coming on Imposters. Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks, man. After my conversation with Wayne Brady, it reminded me of how often we have no idea what's going on in a person's life, regardless of their public image. Wayne is one of the most joyful and entertaining personalities on the planet, but we forget that he's human and he goes through the same crap we all go through in life. Perhaps my biggest takeaway from this conversation is that it's never too late to grow. Even at 50 years old, he is still learning how to be a better person. Wayne was already a top tier talent in my book, but after getting to know the person behind the persona, it put him on another level. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our producers are Michaela Heck and Raymond Liu. Greg Jacobs is our video producer and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineer is Rosemary Minkler. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler. 